I'm Michael Barber. I'm the author of Accomplishment and somebody who's worked with governments all over the world in how to get things done, also with sports teams and businesses. The biggest lesson I've learned for anybody who aspires to great leadership is that the risks of doing nothing are generally much greater than the risks of taking on something ambitious and challenging. Hello and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today. And I'm Ailish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today. Our guest today knows a thing or two about enacting change in complex environments. Sir Michael Barber started his career as a teacher before helping then Prime Minister Tony Blair deliver his national literacy strategy. He was then hired to, and is most famous for, setting up and running Blair's delivery unit, which was responsible for driving progress on Blair's public service reform priorities in health, education, transport, crime and asylum. This delivery unit is something that governments across the world have later copied. He has advised seven of the past eight UK Prime Ministers, not Liz Truss, and is regularly asked to review UK government reforms. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has recently appointed Barber to advise on the implementation of the government's skills reform programme. He also works globally. He advises Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and he's written a book called Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things. And it's a detailed analysis of the patterns, behaviours and structures that you need to put in place to pull off ambitious things and builds on his experience of working in the government, sports. He is a member of the Football Association's Technical Advisory Board and advises Team Sky, the elite cycling team, and business, both at McKinsey and Pearson. He provides some really good advice to leaders on how to actually get things done that I think our listeners will really appreciate. But first, it's time to delve into the leadership world this week. And the big news is the impact of the Chancellor's budget. We've received hundreds of responses from chief execs looking to share their opinions. Ailish, can you give us the context on this budget? Yeah, so the theme of this year's 2023 spring budget was growth and this perceived economic inactivity that the Chancellor um, was talking about in the workplace. And a lot of the initiatives that were set out in the budget a sort of building on the decisions laid out in the 2022 autumn budget to restore economic stability. He outlined in his speech that the UK is not expected to enter a recession this year, which would be good news for a lot of businesses. And we're actually expected to see a 1.8 rise over the next year. He's also aiming to halve inflation by maintaining the energy price guarantee at £2,500 for a further three months from April 2023. He also announced that he's planning on spending more than £5 billion to maintain the fuel duty at current levels for the next 12 months and provide £94 billion to support households with higher costs across the next financial year. The government's also aiming to increase the main rate of corporation tax from 19% to 25%, which will affect businesses with taxable profits over £250,000. Businesses are now able to deduct investment in new machinery and technology to lower their taxable profits. Tax breaks are also going to be given to 12 new investment zones across the UK, which the Chancellor dubbed potential Canary Wharfs, with £80 million worth of funding given over the next five years. Well, great. Thanks for that, Ailish. I think it's particularly interesting that the whole point is to try and drive economic growth and yeah, tackle economic inactivity. And that's something we covered a lot on management today in the last couple of years, particularly looking at the strain that businesses are feeling for not having enough people in the workforce. 
and that you know there's been a real problem for them so i think it's interesting that he's trying to tackle those areas how did this budget go down with business community there were two main areas of productivity that the chancellor focused on and that is working parents and workers over 50 who left the workforce during covid that have not met the age of retirement so one of the initiatives he laid out was the up to 30 hours of free childcare for working parents that is available in England will now cover one to two-year-olds in a bid to help parents, particularly working women, get back into the workforce. And this has generally been well-received. Abby Adamson, who's the founder and DEI director of the Diversity Partnership, welcomed this initiative. But she does hope that this government initiative doesn't do more harm than good by, quote, bolstering supply to meet the new demand. She says sky-high childcare costs have been hemorrhaging women from the workforce, as many have had to choose between a career and parenting. And Ali Hannan, who is the founder and chief executive of Creative Equals, added that this is crucial to ensure supply increases demand so that the commitment to creating more inclusive workplaces does not fall flat. So while this has generally been very well received, there are, of course, a little bit of caution surrounding those initiatives as well. Yeah, this is something that has needed to be tackled for a long time. I think the UK has got the highest childcare costs in Europe. And I think it's a huge coup for the campaigners who have been fighting for a long time to get more help on childcare that the Chancellor seems to have actually listened and is putting that into place. So that's fantastic. I have, however, seen a few grumblings about the fact that a lot of this support isn't coming into place for another year or two. So I think September 2025 is when some of those initiatives will come into place, which is a very long time if you're a parent of a young child now, because it it may mean that that support never comes to you because your child is old enough at that your point child, to miss yeah, it. <laughs> your child ages out of that support. Exactly. So I think that that's obviously a challenge. So that's a working parent's perspective. But there's also been lots of discussion about whether it's actually achievable, given the worker shortages that some of those childcare providers are already facing. And the CBI said it's going to be a big challenge for the sector to grow fast enough to meet the demand created by the new offer. So I think it'll be interesting to see whether that actually comes into fruition properly. And it's not escaped my notice that some of these things are going to be coming in after the general election. Mm. So um, not to be too cynical about it, but um, there's there's that. (laughs) (laughs) And what, what was the other point that came out of it? So, yeah, so more is being done to encourage the over 50s who have left the workforce during COVID. They may have taken early retirement, even though they're not of retirement age they're still able to work. So a lot is being done to encourage them back into the workforce. The Chancellor is making more places available on skills boot camps. The tax relief on pensions is aimed to be increased. The lifetime allowance charge will be removed from April 2023 before being abolished completely from April 2024. And the annual allowance is being raised to £60,000. And Again, like the other initiatives, this has been well received. Andy Briggs, who's the group chief executive of Phoenix Group and the UK government business champion for older workers, believes that while this is a step in the right direction to ensure older workers aren't forgotten, Dr. Mohammed Rahman, who is a lecturer in economics at the University of Salford Business School, says that for long term sustainable growth, the government needs to actually invest in higher education to increase skilled labour. And he says, quote, although the current unemployment rate is less than 4%, the actual rate will be much higher if we include inactive and disguised labour 
in the labour force. This budget does not have any significant policy recommendations for reducing disguised unemployment. So it's interesting that the government is focusing on older workers who they themselves feel have done their time and they've put their work in and they've contributed to the workforce and have felt perhaps during COVID they re-evaluated their work-life situation and felt like it was acceptable for them to take retirement, early retirement or leave the workforce altogether when in fact more needs to be done at a grassroots education level to encourage younger people to get into the workforce or give them more support before they enter the workforce and put more weight behind higher education to increase skilled labour at that level. Mm, That's interesting and that's something I'll guess Lots of Michael Barber is working on right this second, so (laughs) be interesting. Um, So we have a quote from Lauren Thomas, who's an economist at Glassdoor UK, and she believes that the UK needs a specific back-to-work budget to combat the increasing number of economically inactive people. Otherwise, she says, we are headed for long-term declines in productivity. She says, childcare for working parents and training for early retirees is a good start, but its impact remains to be seen, which I suppose links back to your point about the childcare initiatives not coming in until 2025 or not being felt immediately. It's while all these, these things are a good start, how long is it actually going to take before these things come into effect or are felt by the general public? The people need something now. They need something that can be felt now and make a difference here and now within the next year. So it'll be interesting to see how businesses continue the next year while waiting for these initiatives. Absolutely. Although the news that the potential recession may not actually happen will hopefully be cheering. Yes. Hopefully that will be a salve yes. for yes. businesses everywhere. Yes. As long as we don't now face a banking crisis. So that... <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so you received some communication from some SMEs who were kind of not particularly happy about some of those measures that the Chancellor was, had put in place. Yes. We had a quote from Todd Davison, who's the Managing Director of Purbeck Personal Guarantee Insurance, who noted the sort of distinct lack of specific support for SMEs. And he said, quote, we know that to stay afloat, 42% of small businesses have increased their prices, 31% have cut energy use, 23% have changed or extended their hours, while 13% have been searching for new investment. Essentially, the measures announced in this budget will require small businesses to spend in order to save. It is also disappointing not to have seen additional tax incentives to focus small business investment in green technologies and sustainable investment to encourage employers to pursue outcomes which meet and contribute towards the UK. Even though a lot of these initiatives will be somewhat useful to to SMEs, there's no specific investment for small businesses. None of that was announced in the budget. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it's been dubbed the growth budget, but then lots of small businesses are feeling a bit put out because Mm. they don't feel they've had enough support, particularly with the rising energy costs and the higher taxes that are going to now come in with the corporation tax increase. And I think some people are kind of slightly concerned that this is going to lead to a, it's going to be a barrier to investment, Mm. which obviously we kind of need in this country, particularly to improve productivity levels. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that kind of shakes out really. Mm. Great. Well, before we move on to the interview, Management Today's 35 Women Under 35 is currently still open for entries. These awards recognise and reward brilliant female talent in the early stages of their career. The previous winners have included Stella McCartney, Dido Harding, Martha Lane Fox and Karen Blackett. The deadline is this Friday, the 24th of March. So do get your entries in. And now on to the interview with Sir Michael Barber. 
So hi, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us on Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I really enjoyed your book, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things. It's a very detailed analysis of the patterns, behaviours and structure that you need to put in place to achieve ambitious things and builds on your experience working in government, sports and business. Perhaps you could just take a minute to introduce yourself to our listeners. You have a very eclectic career. Uh, Thank you, Kate. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation with you. I'm really looking forward to it. My career in brief is I was a teacher and educator in the 1990s. I became part of the team around Tony Blair that built New Labour's education policy, the famous education, education, education speech that he made. And then the first Blair term, I led the implementation of the education reforms for David Blunkett, who was the Secretary of State for Education. In the second Blair term, building on our progress in the first term, Blair asked me to bring the discipline of delivery to all of his domestic policy priorities. And that didn't go perfectly, but it went very well and it became a world-renowned new approach to getting things done in government. And since then, in different ways, I've applied that approach to help governments around the world, to help governments that came after Tony Blair in Britain, and indeed to help elite sports teams, because it turns out that the approach we applied in government actually works in other organisations. And that's what accomplishment is about the book. It's about how there's a discipline of getting ambitious and difficult things done, that if you apply it, you can make it work. doesn't mean it's easy, but you can get it done. And it applies in sport and science and art, as well as in government. Great, thank you. And so the, the concept you kind of made famous is this concept of deliver, deliverology. Have I said that yes. right? Deliverology. Yes. And part of that, I think at the heart of that, is this concept of a delivery unit. So can you explain what that is and why leaders might need one? Yes. I mean, the word deliverology is actually was a term invented by my friends in the Treasury back when I was working for Tony Blair, kind of mocking term for all the stuff that Michael waffles on about. But it's basically, if you summarize it, we liked the being criticized for being called deliverologists and we adopted the term. And it's basically an approach to getting things done, whether it's reducing health waiting times, we hit all those A&E four-hour targets, for example, reducing crime, which came down by 25 to 30% during that time, or improving school test scores, getting a grip on illegal asylum, and making the trains run on time. So all kinds of things, we applied the same approach. And it's very, very simple. So I always say to people, it's not conceptually difficult. The difficulty is having the discipline to stick at it. So the first thing is set an ambitious goal. The second thing is really obvious stuff, have a plan. The third thing is, as you implement the plan, build routines to check whether it's actually working or not. Don't wait and see, don't wait and read about a crisis in the media, check the data, have the right people in the room regularly every couple of months, write monthly notes as Churchill required from people in the Second World War and Blair asked me to do for the key priorities. So first thing is the ambitious goal. Second thing is have a good plan. The third thing is build routines. The fourth thing is when you run into a problem, try and solve it. And then the fifth thing is have some part of your operation that is constantly focused on those priority goals. And that all of those things, anybody can understand them, but to do them in the midst and heat of battling government is really hard. And you don't need a delivery unit to do all that, actually, but it does really help if you've got a small group of people who can't be distracted. When I left working for Tony Blair after four years, he said the best thing was 
wherever I was in the world and whatever I was working on, I remember all those foreign policy crises like the war in Iraq that he lived through during that time and we all lived through. He said the best thing was I knew you and your small team were focused all day, every day on the things that mattered most to the British people. That is a huge relief for a leader. And you can apply that in a business. You can apply it to work in science and art. That focus is really fundamental. Mm. I liked in your book, you said, remember to ask, whose job is it to have the sleepless nights? I thought that was a nice way of putting it. <laughs> yes, well, it's it's true. So you have to take responsibility. And I, I discovered that in the first Blair term when I was working on the National Literacy Programme in primary schools, the famous literacy hour, and getting the test scores for 11-year-olds to improve significantly. Because we saw the year before Blair was elected in 1997, there was a report saying that literacy standards had roughly plateaued for 50 years which is completely unacceptable. The tests are in May. Every year in the run-up to the tests, I did have sleepless nights because I was personally responsible. In the first meeting I ever had in number 10, which was about a week after the election, Blair said to the ministers and the assembled officials and myself, who's responsible for hitting this literacy target? And everybody looked at me and I said, I am rather anxiously. And from that moment on, I knew I was personally responsible. So as the tests were coming up, I felt that pressure and I did have sleepless nights and I don't regret it. It was one of the most transformative experiences I've ever had. But as you say also in your book about if you're going to try and achieve these great things, you have to also sign up for the suffering that goes alongside it and sort of make sure that you're um, yeah. you're up for both of those things, the glory and also the suffering to get to Yes, it. and I, I take the phrase signing up for the suffering from Dave Brailsford, who used to be head of UK Cycling and Team Sky. And if, you, if you're going to win the Tour de France or some of those Olympic cycle medals, you have to suffer a lot in training to be ready at the level of fitness required. You have to control your diet. You have to train very, very hard for many hours every day at very high speeds on bike, at very high power outputs, which is exhausting. So you have to sign up for the suffering to do ambitious and difficult things. And the suffering in that case, the literacy strategy, is first of all, worrying, are you doing enough? Secondly, things go wrong, so you have to solve them. Thirdly, there are some people who don't want to do it and are critics. You're constantly, you've got to keep the focus and you've got to keep the suffering going. And the suffering and the success go together. And Kate, one one of the crucial things, maybe the single most important message of my book, is that if you're going to do something ambitious then by definition, you don't know enough at the beginning how to do it. You've got to learn on the way. If you knew everything you needed to know at the beginning, it wouldn't be a very ambitious target. You've just got to do what you already know. But for ambitious things, you have to learn as you go and refine, not get distracted, not lose focus, but learn so that you can get ever better at doing the job. And that's what we were doing those four years. Somebody said to me partway through that four years on the National Literacy Programme, or the National Numeracy Programme, he said, you're making this up as you go along. And I said, that's what everybody does. You learn and apply and refine and get better at it. <laughs> I like that. I think also that puts the impetus on doing something as well. Like, again, something somewhere in your book, you mentioned about procrastinating or sort of putting something off. And you yeah. said to do it once is usually a mistake and to do it a second time effectively means you've agreed not to do it. Yeah. I think it's roughly true. I don't know if you've heard the famous joke about what do civil servants chant on a march, but it goes like this. What do we want? Procrastination. When do we want it? Next week. (laughs) Uh, So there's a lot of that in government and you have to get over procrastination. There's always reasons for delaying things. Mm -hmm. And I was always trying to urge people to go faster and be more urgent because 
out there, if you're not being urgent, out there there are people on waiting lists. There are people suffering from crime. There are people, children who should be learning to read and write and do numbers well, but aren't. So urgency should be built into the way you think about it. Mm, particularly with the fallacy that you always think your calendar will be emptier next year. You know, As you said, you've only got kind of a calendar for today, for tomorrow, for next week. Next year seems lovely, blissfully empty in comparison. And yet by the time you get there, it's going to be just as chock-a-block. So exactly. move forward exactly. now. Yes. And that thing about delaying, if you postpone something once, you might do it. If you postpone it twice, almost anybody who thinks about that in relation to a personal goal, never mind an organizational goal, will find that if they postpone it twice, they're probably never going to do it. Mm-hmm. As a deliverologist, how important is getting things done to leadership? And we should Let's just cover that point off first. If you're sitting at the top of an organization and not getting things done, that's not leadership at all. Getting things done is what leadership is. Anybody can hold a position of authority, but to actually lead means changing what people do in your organization, changing what it delivers to the people it serves, whether it's a business or a government organization or a sports team. So leadership is about changing things and it's about pushing people towards the boundaries. It's about pushing people beyond the boundaries. If you're not doing that, it's not really leadership. And you can look at the the way people write about this in the Harvard leadership books. Anybody can sit at the top of an organization, but to actually change something requires leadership. And that requires pushing people, in the famous phrase, out of their comfort zone. So leadership and delivery go together. And my book is about doing ambitious things, difficult things, challenging things. Anybody can do easy things, but you require serious leadership to do difficult things. To that point, I've pulled out points from your book that I think are particularly interesting for leaders now. The first point is about getting a guiding coalition. Can you talk through what that means and how you find those people and how you know that those are the right people to be taking with you on the journey? Yes, it's really important because however ambitious a person you are and however talented you are, on your own, you're unlikely to be able to change anything very substantial. You could do things in your own life. You could run a marathon or a half marathon, as I describe in the book, or do a long cycle race, as I describe in the book. But if you want to change an organization, you can't do it on your own. So the question is, who are the six or seven people, roughly that number, in your organization on whom you depend to get this job done, whatever your ambitious goal is? It may not be all people in the management team. In fact, it probably won't be. That guiding coalition, you have to inspire them with the mission and you have to explain to them how it's going to work and get a shared understanding because then you can move quickly. Mm. So when I was working for David Blunkett, he and I thought exactly the same on literacy. So did Estelle Morrison before her, Stephen Byers, who were the Minister of State. So did the Permanent Secretary. So did Connor Ryan, who was David Blunkett's media advisor. So if Connor was briefing the Times editorial writer and David was speaking in the House of Commons and I was talking to a group of head teachers, we'd all say exactly the same things without having to brief each other. So once you've got the guiding coalition in place, you get a deeper under shared understanding and you can move much faster without the grinding of the gears you often get in change. Mm-hmm. And you can do the same in business. And the idea comes from John Cotter, the Harvard business writer. So it's an idea that comes from business and I then applied into government in various in various guises. Mm, I think that stops one person being the bottleneck as well. That's not one leader that has to sign everything off and nobody else can move until they, they've given the okay. Yes, yes. And, and in the modern world, especially with social media and everything, there's so many bits of communication happening all the time. And if you have to consult for each piece of communication, it just gums everything up. 
And you remember in a business or a government department or a sports team, internal communication is often as important as external communication. And that too needs to be consistent. Mm -hmm. So the next point was about trajectories. And I'm just going to read a quote that you said, trajectories are for everyone, beautiful things that require you to think about the impact your planned actions will have over time. Learn to love them. Yes, I learned to love them. A trajectory is such a beautiful thing. You know where your goal is. You've got some point in the future where you want to achieve a certain level of performance. You know where you are now. You've got a plan so you know what you're going to try and do between where you are now and hitting that goal. If you, at the beginning, decide how will the data change as we implement these things, it makes you think about the effect each step you take will have on the ultimate outcome. And it's very powerful. When you suggest it to the average civil servant, they say, oh, but what if we're wrong? And I say, well, of course you'll be wrong. How many people predict the future accurately? It's almost impossible. But the very act of trying means that as you then unfold your strategy, you see, are you on trajectory, ahead of trajectory, behind trajectory? If you're ahead of trajectory, why has that happened? How, how have you been able to go faster than expected? Maybe you got the trajectory wrong, but you can. if you're behind trajectory, what's not working? If you've got... 200 hospitals in a health system are some of them ahead of trajectory and some of them behind trajectory if so you can focus on the ones that are behind trajectory so it's a way of mm. in close to real time because you have to get data obviously to track against trajectory in close to real time of knowing whether you're on track or not and it helps you solve problems because in any decent sized system you'll have some people that are ahead of trajectory and you can learn from them and some people behind trajectory who need a bit of pressure or a bit of support or a bit of encouragement or a bit of challenge. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's encouraging you to continually monitor yourself against the goal that you've set out in the beginning so that you're not getting distracted. Yes, exactly. And, and the trajectories have different shapes. So the classic thing, as we used to tease my good friends in Whitehall, is that when you ask people for a trajectory, they go rushing back to their department and they get out their most sophisticated analytical equipment, which they call a ruler, and they draw a straight line from where you are now to the future. But actually, change very rarely happens in straight lines. Some things change fast when you focus on them and then get harder. Some things need capital investment and nothing much happens until you've made the investment and then you get a steep rise at the end. But you have to get the shape of the curve. Some things are seasonal. Crime is more common when you get the long, dark evenings in winter. The health service is under more pressure in winter. The railways find it harder to perform on, in terms of reliability and punctuality when the leaves fall off the trees in the autumn. These seasonal things you have to track mm. and you can build them into the trajectory. Hmm. Just picking up on your point about the ruler there, another point you've made is don't fall into the equipment trap. I like this. So don't just go shopping. Don't just leave with the money all the yeah. time. Um, and you gave it a good example about the schools with the laptops being sent out. I kind of interpret this as don't just focus on the shiny thing here, actually properly fit what's underneath that to make sure it's actually going to work. Yes. So, and it's very common, has been over the last 25 years for a minister or a government to get really excited about the potential of technology to change education. And so what do they do? They buy laptops and computers for schools and send them out and they think they've done it. And then as my good friend, Caitlin Donnelly said in something she wrote, you visit a school and you find computers new enough to still be wrapped in plastic, but old enough to be covered in dust. That's happened countless times all over the world. And the problem with it is you've focused on the equipment, but until the teachers know how to use the equipment, until the teachers know what have got software that is useful in those computers, actually 
the computers aren't that valuable at all. And obviously, if you're in the developing world, you have to make sure they've got electricity and connection and connectivity and now internet connection and all the rest of it. And the technology trap is most common. Or The thing I have individual accomplishment is people who join the gym in the new year and they go a couple of times and before they go, they've bought all the really very, very spectacular kit, beautiful trainers, amazing workout outfits they go along and then on a sort of cold, wet Thursday towards the end of January, I think, actually, I'll give it a miss today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it all begins to disintegrate and they've got a cupboard full of very beautiful gym equipment, but no extra fitness. I'd be surprised if there's anybody listening to this who hasn't come across somebody in roughly those circumstances. <laughs> exactly. But you were very disciplined. You didn't buy your new shiny bike till six months into your program. Is this right? Yes, because I well I I knew about the equipment trap. I hadn't written accomplishment then, but I wanted to cycle all down the west coast of Scotland home to Devon to celebrate being sixty. And I knew I needed a coach and fitness, so I got a coach. I had a fairly old bike, but it worked. He started coaching me. I had to check in with him every Sunday, so I've got my routine. I've got my data because he's taught me how to collect data on a bike with and monitor my heart rate and all the other things you need to monitor. And then he said, you'll need a new bike to do the ride. I said, I know I will, but I'm not going to buy it till I've done six months of this. I'm getting fitter and I know I'm really going to do it. Then I'll buy the bike. And I did buy the bike and it was wonderful. And I did manage the uh, the triple O. That was a classic because I had a setback on the way because I got diagnosed with cancer partway through it. So I had to cancel the first trip. But as soon as I'd done my radiotherapy, I got back on my bike and did the trip um, six months later. Well, sorry to hear that, but great that you did it and you uh, only put it off once. Yes, <laughs> That's the key exactly. there, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, but no, I think that equipment trap is interesting because again, it's the, um, you get the dopamine hit of buying it, yes. but it's actually kind of lazy thinking really because you're not actually solving the problem. Yeah, and if I play it into, I've seen this many times in education systems, if you want to move things on with technology and education, which is a good aspiration, you need to do five or six things. You need to Make sure there's connectivity. Make sure that any technology is there. Make sure there's some somebody who can maintain it and ensure it's repaired so that if it goes wrong, you have to make sure there's, there's software that is appropriate to what you want the children to learn. And you, and you need to make sure the teachers have the skills to use the software and the machines to enhance children's education. If you do all five of those things, you will make real progress. If you just buy the technology, nothing will happen. Great. So on to the next point, and this is very relevant given you were transforming literacy, but it's whether you decide to be Captain Ahab or Pip. So talk me through the pros and cons of that approach and whether you prefer one or the other. Yeah, I wanted an imaginative metaphor for challenges that constantly face businesses, big business anyway, and governments, which is when you've got your exciting, ambitious new thing to do, when do you announce it? It's very tempting to go out there and announce it right away. But that raises expectations and maybe you want to do that so I'm not against it but maybe alternatively you want to quietly get on with it and then when it's really working then you say look we've done this and now we're going to take it to its logical conclusion and I love great literature so I used Pip who is literally introduced on page one of Great Expectations where he meets Magwitch in a churchyard and then many years later I read Moby Dick and There's an awful lot of stuff about whaling and all of that before you get to the devastating introduction of Captain Ahab on page 217 or 218, and it's terrifying. But you've waited, 
you've waited a long time. He's got you sort of, because if you've read that far, you're going to keep going, aren't you? Oh, yeah. I thought it's the one book I forced myself to get all the way through, even though I hated the majority of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. God, this, this, he needed an editor. He really needed an editor. <laughs> <laughs> he did. But it is, in the end, it's an, it's an awesome book. Great Expectations is also a great book. And there's no right or wrong. You may want to raise expectations. You may need to generate some momentum. You may need to challenge your system in a business or in a government department or in a big professional group like teachers or doctors. And you may go for the big bang announcement or you may not. And the book accomplishment debates which of those you should choose and in which circumstances and what are the advantage of one versus the other. And the choice is Ahab or Pip. Mm -hmm. And two more points I've taken from your book. And one is don't be afraid of using proven techniques or adopting methods from other people. It's it's not cheating. And I like this one. Yes. I mean, it's it's madness to think that any one of us as the human race can invent everything we need to know to do whatever it is. And if other people have done it before and pretty much anything you do, somebody's attempted it somewhere or, or done something like it and you can learn from them, why not learn from them? And why... Why resist something that was not invented by you, but was invented elsewhere? So constantly looking at the world around you and learning from what's going on. And we very boring deliverologists talk about five types of benchmarking. So you can learn within a system. The 200 hospitals that have A&E departments can learn from each other in England. That's one, one form of learning. And then there's learning from other systems. You can learn about how to manage your A&E department from Australia or Canada or or Scandinavia, for example. So that'd be a second type of benchmarking. And then you can learn from other government organizations that aren't doing what you're doing, but are doing tasks with a similar social purpose and a similar complex system, and how do they do it? Great. And then the final point I took was build monotony. And I'm just going to read out one of your quotes from the book. And it said, you talked about when you set up the Prime Minister's Delivery Unit in 2001, you change government by spasm to government by routine. And you say, this is how results got ground out. Routine, regularity, and monotony. It won't appear often, if at all, in the history books. But I like to think that my fight to build monotony into the way the PM used his time was one of the most important contributions I made to British government. Yes. Well, I believe every single word of that, um, including and different but, as they say. Uh, so I, I think it's really important. And we all like a bit of excitement and innovation and imagination. I'm in favor of all those things. And they're all important. And they all have their place in the kind of accomplishments I describe in the book. But a lot of achievement is about grinding stuff out. It is about building monotony. Some of the hardest work I did in number 10 in those four years between 2001 and 2005 was building routines into the Prime Minister's diary. So every two months, he's going to review progress on health. Every two months, he's going to review progress on reducing crime. Getting time in a Prime Minister's diary is really, really hard work because there are so many pressures on a Prime Minister. And even when you built it into the diary by being nice to the diary secretary and getting Blair behind it and all the rest of it, even then, on any given day, something can happen. Some bit of news, some minister in trouble, some international crisis and you've still got to fight every day to keep the routines. But if you do, and I think Blair would say that this was crucial to our work together, if you do, it makes an enormous difference to keeping the whole process going. Because once I know that those meetings are going to happen routinely, I can go to a department and say, we think, looking at your data, that you've got this problem. 
what do you think? And they'll eventually they'll agree. Then you say, let's try and solve it before the next stock take. So you've got a deadline that you can work towards rather than what was happening under government by spasm, which there's something in the media saying the A&E thing is a crisis. Blair summons the relevant ministers and officials. There's a kind of spasm response and then they go away and do something. It might, it might make things better or it might not. But if you've got this routine going, you've constantly got a deadline coming up and you've constantly got a focus. You can't do that if you're doing government by spasm because it's going to depend on random things going right and getting drawn to the Prime Minister's attention through the media or something. Mm, just lurching from one sort of media crisis to another. Yeah, and the work I've done in Punjab or Canada with Justin Trudeau or in Australian states or elsewhere in the world, that systematic application of routines to the way a government works is enormously important. So going back to the quote you read out, for which I am grateful, I stand by it. <laughs> Great. I see the attraction of routines, but I also feel how do you make sure you're building in creativity and spontaneity within that? That's actually the it's the right question because to me the really important answer to that is that once you've got your routine, the room for creativity is greatly enhanced. Whereas creativity thrown into some chaos, it can easily get lost. If you've got a routine and in two months you know you're gonna review progress on health waiting times and something isn't working the creativity is in finding the solution in time for the next meeting whereas if you're not even sure if it's working you haven't got the data there's no routine coming up you might have a creative idea and everyone will say oh that's interesting and then nothing will happen so actually the the routine and the creativity go together Mm, I see that it kind of it makes creativity applied creativity rather than just an abstract creativity that doesn't actually link to a, a practical outcome now, you have become sort of the go-to expert that's sort of parachuted in to do lots of various government reforms or reviews of different bits. What is it that you look for when you go in? What is the first thing you're looking for when you're given a task like that? I basically ask five questions in order. The first one is, what are you trying to do? What is it you want this system to do? Challenge vague things like, well, we'd like it to be better. I want to know how much better in what aspects and how you're going to measure that. And then secondly, well, that seems like a good goal or an ambitious goal. What are you, um, and by the way, if the goal isn't really ambitious, I get bored. So if it's too easy, I'd say, well, you can get somebody else to advise. I like difficult things. The <laughs> second bit is, is there a plan? And we all know plans never work out properly, but having a good plan really is a good starting point. And then you can adapt and refine it as a way. So question one is what you're trying to do. Question two is how you're trying to do it. Question three is how will you know at any given moment that you're on track? So often you have to, fix the data system, get the feedback you need in order to do this. And then you build the routines into that part. And then fourthly, how do you solve problems when they arise? Quite a lot of governments and organizations, actually, as soon as it gets tough, they think, oh, this is too difficult and they go and do something else. So I like to know how you're going to solve the problem. And if the goal is really important and ambitious and has a moral purpose, how dare you give up on it when you've only just started? And then finally, I'd like to know who are the people that I will work with over time to give them the capacity to do these things. Perfect. And so most of your career has been in the public sector. How does it sort of compare to the private sector? Because you have worked in both, but are there any kind of distinct differences that you've noticed? Yes. I mean, I worked six years in McKinsey and, and about the same in Pearson. So I, I've done a decent stint in the private sector and indeed I've been involved in developing my own business. So I have seen the private sector. First thing to say is, What's in common is more important than the differences. 
in terms of accomplishing things, and that's the, what the book is about, mm. the same things apply in all these kinds of organizations. And I get frustrated when I hear people telling me that if only government and civil service learnt from business, everything would be fine because I'm the same person like thousands of your listeners who call some business organisation and it takes me 35 minutes to get through to a recorded voice, which then offers me five options and then I get to the, I choose the fourth one and then I wait for another 10 minutes. So I know about the frustrations of working with business. And to me, that what's common is a good organisation will have many common features with a good organisation, whether it's public or private, and the pathologies of bad organisations will be the same, whether they're public or private or in the business sector. There are some differences, though. I consider myself fortunate to have spent eight years in the Blair administration. We were bold. We took quite a lot of risks. When I left in my final conversation with Tony Blair, he said, and I agree with him, we could have been bolder still, but we were bold. We did take risks. I found in McKinsey, for example, that they weren't terribly risk-taking. So one difference, I found the governments I worked with were more risk-taking than many business organisations. Mm. Um, but what's interesting is the pressure of accountability in government. It's through parliament and the data you're putting out, the public and the media. In business, it's the quarterly returns that you have to put out to the market. And the market pressures, I saw this in Pearson, the market pressures on business are as strong in some cases as the accountability pressures on government organization. And so there's a lot to learn about how you manage that. So I don't like business is good and government is bad or the reverse. Neither is true. Good organizations are good organizations and they all do those things that bring about accomplishment well if they're good and not so well if they're less good. Mm -hmm. Great. So I've got three questions just on the kind of current context and how your thinking might apply to that. And um, one is obviously we're meeting in the week that there are two days of teacher strikes going on. I'm interested in what you make of the government's response to them. It's difficult, isn't it? We're in 2023. 2022 is a very uncertain time. The previous decade was a period of austerity. The public finances were uh, in rocky shape after the six weeks of Liz Truss's Prime Minister. Jeremy Hunt is a very sensible, thoughtful Chancellor, above all, trying to stabilise and build the conditions in which the British economy can grow. So they can't give in to all the pressures of public sector pay and they can't give in spectacularly to one and then just set a new baseline like the um, Callaghan government and the early Thatcher governments did back in the inflation in the late 70s. So they've got a challenge on their hands and the, the strikers too have got a challenge on their hands because they can and sometimes do make a very good case for investing in pay but they do have to, this is the 21st century if you want increases in pay, it has to go with innovation, with improvements in productivity, with better output. And so if you want increased pay without any change, that's a difficult argument to win. And similarly, if you're the government, you will over time have to increase public sector pay because there's been pressures on it over a 10 to 15 year period. And we do want to recruit lots of great people into teaching, into nursing and, and these other fields. But for the government, it's perfectly reasonable to say, and in return, we want some changes in the way things work because the world is moving on and we need, we need overall, as government, we need better outcomes for the same amount of taxpayers' money. Or if we increase taxes, we need a lot better outcomes. And I've done work for the Treasury on public value. How do you measure the value getting for the trillions of pounds that we spend every year? Mm. So we have to turn it into a dialogue about how to improve systems 
as well as increased pay, not just a zero sum between we haven't got any money and we want more pay and back and forth. Mm. If you've got time, Kate, I'll tell you a story from the 1920s. The National Union of Teachers, as then was, it's now part of the NEU, went on strike in Lowestoft in East Anglia because the Lowestoft school district or school local authority cut teachers' pay by, I can't remember how much, 10 15%. There was a recession in the early 20s. There'd been the Geddes Acts, the famous Geddes Acts, when public sector pay was cut, not just in education, but generally. Anyway, so the teachers go on strike. The local authority employed blackleg labour, so unqualified teachers to staff the schools. And the teachers didn't just sit at home. The teachers opened strike schools. They were being paid by the union on strike pay. They opened strike schools in village halls, church halls, and so on. So now the parents of Lowestoft have got a choice. They can send their children to the blackleg-run local authority schools or they can send them to the union-run strike schools. And both were operating. And eventually HMI, the forerunner of Ofsted, sent inspectors to look at both lots of schools. And they said the strike schools are much better than the blackleg schools which is what you'd expect because these were trained teachers versus untrained teachers mm -hmm. and the strike won the lowest of local authority gave in and i can't remember exactly the settlement but the teachers did much better than they would otherwise have done now why do i like that story because the teachers on strike put the children first that's really important mm -hmm. it's an interesting story i think i wonder what people might think though if they're saying their argument is they've been underpaid and they're not getting the inflation linked pay rises for years they've been underfunded and they they don't feel like they're doing a good job for children anymore well i'm not taking a position on the uh, uh, on the current strike i'm just saying that i think you can be as the nut in lower stuff was you can be imaginative about how you go about this i'm not saying recommending that particular thing but in the end on any of these public sector strikes like if you, if you go on strike in a car factory while you're on strike, no cars are being produced, so the company is losing money. Mm. But if you go on strike in a school system and the local authority no longer needs to pay you, I'm not sure, I don't know if that's happening in this current strike, then they're actually saving money while you're on strike. So the only way to win the strike is to win the public argument because the employer is actually getting, getting richer while you're on strike if you're in the lowest off situation. Mm. So you have to win the public battle. And if you're going to win the public battle with parents who are hard-pressed themselves trying to get to work and don't want to be at home with their children, then putting the children first is going to help you. It's not just you versus the government. It's everybody trying to win the public argument. I think that's a really good point. How do you think the government handled the pandemic? I've talked to various government ministers about this, including the then Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. You have to look at it across the whole period. I think they did some of it well and some of it there's lessons they can learn you have to remember at the beginning that everybody in the world was facing the same challenge so it was the first time in human history that every government was given the same homework assignment at the same time and they did it in very very different ways so I, th I think it would have been better for everybody if governments had learned faster from each other at the beginning but I think towards the end, I mean, the vaccine rollout was fantastic. And Emily Lawson, who organised all that in the Department of Health, is now running the current Prime Minister's delivery unit, by the way, 
was brilliant and that was a, a phenomenal achievement admired around the world. I think the phasing out of the restrictions was actually, with, with ups and downs, was done pretty well. But I think the, the beginning looked a bit chaotic, a bit panic-stricken, inconsistency in communicating the message. Remember all those Downing Street press conferences? Mm. The committee with all the experts on, and then each of the experts comes away from the committee and says something different to the media or something different from the government. That, I thought, was needed a bit more organisation. By the way, I used to do press conferences with Tony Blair. So when I was watching those press conferences in the upstairs room in number 10, I wasn't actually thinking about what Chris Whitty or the Prime Minister was saying. I was thinking that's the same screen that we had in 2002. <laughs> haven't we got a new screen? Uh, but anyway. They haven't fallen into the equipment trap, you see. So. <laughs> no, no. So that, you're right. That's credit to them. But I, I think that I, I think overall... The government came through, but it was a very, very difficult time, not just in this country. And we saw lots of other countries struggle with that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Great. And so just back to the book now. The last question is, what is the biggest mistake that people make when trying to get things done? Well, I think sometimes the biggest mistake, maybe the commonest mistake, is to think that the risks of doing something ambitious are greater than the risks of doing nothing. We live in a rapidly changing world. You look at what's happening to technology, globalization, all of that. Standing still is a guaranteed route to mediocrity and worse. And so when somebody says, let's do this ambitious thing, all those people who say, hang on a minute, that sounds too ambitious. Actually, in fact, they're arguing for doing much less. That's a good point. So uh, on the side of doing as you said at the very start of this yeah. whole uh, podcast, yes. nicely. Well, it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, the, and the subtitle of accomplishment is how to achieve ambitious and challenging things. And mm-hmm. I think if you look at climate change, you look at what's happening with biotechnology, you look at what's happening with AI, we've got some massive changes happening in the world we live in. So anybody who's thinking about standing still, stop, because you can't stand still. We have to adapt all the time and learn. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Michael, thanks so much for your time. And for the listeners, if you're interested, Michael's book is out now and it's Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things. Thank you very much, Kate. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.